You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Quarterly. Hi, I'm Alan Webb, Editorial Director of McKinsey Publishing and Editor-in-Chief of the McKinsey Quarterly. I'm in Seattle today talking with McKinsey Partners Tim Kohler, who's based in New York, and Mark Goodhart, who's in Amsterdam. Tim and Mark are the co-authors of the seminal book, Valuation, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies, which is now in its sixth edition. Tim, Mark, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. Thank you. So uh, it's, it's been 25 years since the first edition of this book came out. Why do you think it has become such an enduring resource for practitioners and students of corporate finance? I think the reason for the longevity of our book is its uniqueness. Uh, it includes both very practical, technical advice on how to do valuations based on real examples, real accounting statements. It is grounded in solid academic theory, and it also reflects the latest developments going on in the finance world and how those affect companies thinking about value creation. Uh, so, it's, so it's unique in, in that sense, whereas the academic books tend to focus more just on the, the academic theory without a lot of the practical advice, and a lot of the practical verse aren't grounded in theory. The other thing that we've done over the years to enhance the uh, quality of the book is to make much more explicit linkages between the finance, financial analysis, and uh, company strategy. What drives return on capital and growth and how that translates into value creation. So we put it all together, I think, in a unique way, and that's what accounts for its longevity. One thing you say in the book uh, is that the principles of value and valuation are, are fairly timeless. So I've got to ask, why do we need a sixth edition? Uh, heck, why do we need a second edition? We've been updating uh, valuation every five years uh, for the last 25 years. And I think that the changes that have occurred over time, as you pointed out, the fundamental principles don't change. I think we've become much more precise and concise about helping managers understand what those principles are and how they apply to uh, corporate decision making. In addition to that, we also uh, have to update the book to reflect changes in accounting rules uh, and other things that are going on that would affect the valuation. We also update the book regularly to uh, reflect changes in the economic environment and, and how that affects strategic thinking. We update the book also to make sure we have current examples and current empirical analysis to back up the points that we're trying to make. And I think it's also important, given the, uh, the events that we've seen in, in 2000 with the internet boom and bust and the 2008, the, uh, the credit crisis, to, to actually show that these principles hold even in the times of crisis and that they're even more important in that time of crisis. And I think renewing that message is, is actually what makes a new edition always adding value for, for managers and decision makers. Thanks. So we've been talking about value and valuation at a high level, but let's get a little more concrete in our terms. How do you define value creation and what's the relationship between value creation and shareholder value? I'd say value creation is the, is, is the economic profit that, that a company generates when the cost of all resources are taken into account, right? Not only of raw materials and labor and equipment, but also the cost of the debt and the cost of the equity capital. And that value creation is positive if the return on capital in a company 
exceeds the cost of capital. And in the long term, that value creation, what we call intrinsic value creation, is also reflected in a company's share price in the stock market. Having said that, in, in the short term, stock prices can deviate from this intrinsic value because of random events, you know, investor emotions, etc. But in the long term, right, the value that companies create you know, in terms of economic profit is also what is reflected in the stock price, in the, uh, in the share price, in the stock market. There's another dimension that I think that's worth pointing out as well uh, in terms of value creation, which is obviously earning a return on capital greater than your cost of capital, as Mark pointed out. Uh, the, the next dimension then obviously is growing or becoming larger so that you can create even more uh, economic profit at that higher return on capital greater than the cost of capital. Got it. Uh, shareholder value sometimes gets a bad name. It's, it's seen as synonymous with short-termism because executives focus on hitting the numbers for Wall Street at the expense of long-term business priorities. What do you think is right and what is wrong about that critical view of shareholder value creation? What I would say is two, two common lines of criticism on, on shareholder value creation. Right? I, I think one, what we see is uh, about short-termism. Right, shareholder value creation leading to short-termism, and the other probably about you know the uh, the, the the tension between uh, maximizing value for shareholders and actually satisfying other stakeholders in the company. I think for that first criticism, right, the short-termism essentially says that shareholder value must lead to short-termism among executives and managers because actually the current the short-term earnings is the only factual information that's flowing into the market that's the only thing investors receive that's the only thing they can price uh, the company on um, and as a result it drives executives to maximize the short-term earnings maybe at the expense of the long-term performance of the company and i think what some of these uh, uh, criticisms uh, uh, rely on or put forward as, as as evidence is cases where companies that missed consensus quarterly earnings uh, by just a couple of uh, percentage points where these companies actually saw their stock markets plummet. And I think some of the, the, the people who put the criticism forward see these fierce share price reactions to, to small changes, small disappointments in, in earnings per share as evidence for the fact that you know the market is short-term oriented and that um, it leads to companies you know, focusing on short-term earnings. Yeah, I, th I think that um, managers, y y it is easy for managers, executives to fall into that short-term trap, uh, often for, for a number of reasons. One is, as Mark was talking about, there's a lot of noise in the stock market that talks about short-term earnings and whether you beat the consensus or not. In addition to that, the boards of directors often uh, you know, don't have a deep enough perspective on the company to judge managers other than current earnings. And their compensation systems are, quite frankly, often biased towards current earnings. So there's a lot of pressure on managers to focus on that. Uh, we would argue, however, that it's not coming so much from the stock market as it's coming from the internal dynamics of the company. We would argue that companies need to be much more uh, analytical about understanding which investors matter to their share price over time. And rather than listening to the loudest investors, uh, who are often the ones focused on the short term, but listening really to the most influential, the most important investors over the long term, who have a much more sophisticated view of the performance of that company over time, they are in it for the long haul. 
Uh, and if companies and if executives have the courage to ignore the press, ignore the short-term investors, focus on the long-term investors, and also spend more time educating the boards on what really drives value, maybe even having to change compensation systems to get them to focus more on the long-term. Uh, I think those are some of the things that can be done to help managers uh, focus more on the long-term. It has nothing to do with shareholder value versus something else, though. Shareholder value intrinsically does not focus on the short-term. It's the way in some companies it's been implemented and the way companies uh, and managers behave that leads to the short-termism, not the shareholder perspective itself. One other point I'd like to make is that uh, sometimes managers come back and say, well, I have to do what's best for my current shareholders, which may mean uh, a shareholder who wants a short-term pop in uh, earnings and you know maybe a short-term pop in the valuation so that they can sell out. There's nothing that says that managers have to, regardless of the economic, the legal environment or regulatory environment, whether it's the U.S. or Europe or other places, there's nothing that says that managers have to focus on today's shareholders. So it sounds like you think short-termism may be an issue, but we shouldn't get it confused with shareholder value. And so we'd love to hear a little more from you about how real a problem you think short-termism is, and to the extent that it is real, how, how problematic uh, it is. Short-termism is real. There's a lot of evidence of that. Uh, but that said, it's not universal across all companies. Right? So for example, there have been surveys done by academics, and we've done surveys that show that uh, companies are sometimes willing to forego profitable investments in order to meet their short-term earnings targets. One of the causes of short-termism is the fact that the CEO of a large company doesn't often have a great visibility in the decisions that are being made several layers down. Uh, and so I think CEOs and CFOs need to have a much more granular view on the decisions of the executives farther down to see whether or not, for example, they're meeting their short-term earnings targets by uh, delaying investments in new products or sales and marketing efforts, those kind of things. Uh, I think also companies need to do a better job of encouraging mid-level uh, employees and uh, managers to come up with growth ideas, some of which that may be small, may be risky, that they can fund. I think a lot of companies have created a culture where companies, uh, uh, you know, managers simply say, well, I've got some ideas here, but I'm never going to get funding because it's never going to get through the short-term budget, so I'm not even going to bring it up. And finally, I think, I think there does need to be a rethink of the way executives are compensated. Uh, in our conversations with executives, um, it almost always comes down to, yeah, but our pay is based on you know this year's earnings. And that drives a lot of their thinking. And I think that uh, to be a little, I think companies should focus a little bit more on, a, on a, maybe a three-year or five-year uh, compensation perspective rather than a one-year perspective. Fascinating. Mark, there were two issues with respect to the shareholder and value creation that you thought were worth talking about. One was short-termism, which we've talked about at some length. What, what was the second issue? The other issue is uh, what we come across is, is actually people saying that you know, maximizing shareholder value will come inevitably at the expense of other stakeholders, such as uh, customers, you know, uh, employees, suppliers, whatever. A recent example would be uh, pharmaceutical companies increasing the prices for their uh, uh, products you know, to their patients, which clearly benefits the shareholders, you know, translating into higher uh, profits and higher share prices for these companies but also comes at the expense of, of patients' uh, insurance companies. And I think that tension uh, between you know, to what extent do you pursue 
the wealth of shareholders, you know, uh, even at the cost of other stakeholders. I think that tension is a, is a criticism that we, we, we do come across. Well, let, let me give you a couple of, 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 of examples. Uh, you know, in the oil and gas industry, there have been some situations where companies have not put as much attention and energy and cost on uh, and focus on safety, uh, which has led to uh, environmental degradation and damage. But in those cases, it's not a conflict. In that case, it's not a conflict between the shareholders and, let's say, environmental issues and, and the consumers. Because in the long run, those companies that sort of skimp on safety pay a price for it, both in terms of their reputation among customers, as well as the real costs of cleaning up their messes, which often far exceed uh, any savings that they would have achieved. Another example is the automobile industry, uh, where we've seen a number of recalls over the last several years, which are very costly both in terms of cost to replace that, in terms of reputation, where companies, once again, took shortcuts. There were either safety issues or other issues that uh, persisted for many years in order to beef up short-term profits. And those companies um, have been damaged as a result of that, not only paying fines, having to rectify the problem, uh, as well as the, the, the reputational damage done. So in, in many cases, companies that take shortcuts uh, to achieve profits at the expense of other constituents, those things often backfire. Interesting. So yeah, it sounds like the two issues may in fact be intertwined, uh, short-termism and stakeholder dynamics. Let's, let's there, shift gears a bit. Let me just add a couple of, couple of things on that though. Uh, so, so there is a little bit of it, they, they do intertwine to some extent. That said, for the most part, uh, what we do see is that the companies that do invest in R&D, that uh, do create value, uh, also tend to create employment, they tend to have happier customers. You do have to have happy customers, uh, happy employees, etc., in order to create value. So in most cases, we find that there is not a conflict between consumer satisfaction, employee satisfaction, uh, environmental and safety issues and creating shareholder values. We struggle to find examples where there's a contradiction between those. That said, it doesn't mean that companies should give away their products. A company like Apple Computer is able to charge a substantial premium uh, because consumers are willing to pay that premium. So you've got a situation there where you've got happy consumers who love their products, and you've got a company that makes a lot of money and is able to charge a premium. Everybody wins in that situation. I think in the end, right, uh, maximizing value for shareholders is not just making shareholders richer. It's about actually driving sustainable performance in companies from which all stakeholders will benefit and obviously shareholders too. I want to shift gears a bit to the nuts and bolts side of the book uh, that you described at the outset. It, it, the book is used quite a bit in business schools where valuation is often synonymous with measuring the cash flows associated with a project, understanding that it has a, a positive net present value. What, in your experience, do companies get right and what do they get wrong when it comes to this sort of uh, you know, core technical valuation? What is important to focus on in practice is, actually, is on the underlying value drivers, not on the number that comes out of the spreadsheet, but on the key assumptions that go into the financial forecast and, and the extent to which those assumptions on, on, on revenue growth, market share, on profitability and capital expenditures are grounded in, in, in a thorough understanding of what the opportunity is for the company 
what its competitive advantages are. Let me add to that, I think, because one of the things that we see that companies don't get right is, as Mark was talking about, it's not so much about you know getting a precise number, it's about understanding the drivers uh, of either whether it's a project or a business unit strategy or whatever. One of the other things that we see, though, is that companies are reluctant to acknowledge uncertainty. There is tremendous uncertainty, whether you're undertaking a project, uh, whether you've got a business unit strategy or whatever, there's a tremendous bias uh, to have one set of numbers which gets presented to senior management instead of a range of numbers. And I think that companies should put more energy or get more comfortable with talking about uncertainty explicitly. This particular project you know, has a 25% chance of failure. Uh, but if it's successful, you know, the NPV is quite enormous. Instead of saying, on average, this project is going to earn a 15% return on capital and therefore create a certain NPV. Better for management to sort of see the full range of outcomes as they're making decisions. Uh, so they can sort of understand better the risk they're taking, what the upside is, uh, how that relates perhaps to other projects the company is pursuing. And then finally, the other thing that um, companies can improve on, and this is a little bit more on the technical side of things, is you know, the accounting rules are constantly changing and becoming, in some cases, more complex and, and, and strange, if you will. That's one of the things we really try to work hard on the book is sort of how do you translate traditional gap accounting into measures of return on capital, economic profit, uh, and cash flow that are correct given all the accounting complexities. So beyond doing smart project valuation, what, what does it mean in practical terms for executives to focus on value creation? What are some of the things, that, the meaningful levers that companies should be trying to pull to create value? Well, I, I think that one of the, the most important things that companies need to understand is uh, what the levers are that apply to them. Every company is in a different starting position in terms of growth and return on capital. Uh, in terms of their competitive environment. And the answer is different depending upon that. And I think a lot of companies don't realize that. So for example, uh, if you have a company with you know, five different divisions, you're gonna find that you know, one of those divisions is likely to have a very high return on capital, nice gross prospects. Another one might have a very low return on capital. And the levers are gonna be different for those different divisions. And companies need to be able to differentiate their strategies. They shouldn't simply say, okay, everybody's got to cut costs 10% this year. What you should be doing is saying, how do I help the division with the great opportunities, the high return on capital to grow faster? How do I help the division, which has got a low return on capital, to get that return on capital up? Because that's going to create a lot more value uh, than growing that business. And I think companies can do a much better job of being systematic and thinking about, okay, what are the growth, what, how does value creation vary depending upon the type of growth? Often you'll find, for example, that innovation uh, in particular tends to create the most value. On the other hand, trying to take market share away from your major competitors in a, in a mature market often will destroy value because it leads to price competition. And there's a number of things in between, finding new customers to buy your products, expanding geographically, other things that might create value. So it's really about figuring out what a prioritization of the different initiatives are and focusing on those that are going to create the most value. And what about uh, cross-cutting new opportunities, things people talk about like the emergence of big data over the last five years? How do you think about that in relation to value creation? Let's separate that into two questions, right? 
cross-cutting issues versus big data. If you're talking about cross-cutting issues, meaning across the company, I think that there's a bit of a danger that sometimes companies try to apply, want every business unit to sort of pursue the same big initiatives. You know, in, in, in some business units, big beta may not be that important, and in other businesses, it, it, it will be. Uh, I remember uh, working with a company once that was focused on working capital management, right? Uh, and yet there were a couple of business units where working capital was not an issue. Uh, and yet they still had to generate the same reports and, you know, et cetera, that, that, that where the, uh, as the units where working capital was relevant. So once again, you know, I, I'm always concerned about big corporate-wide initiatives that are applied sort of spread all over the place. Uh, because oftentimes uh, they need to be tailored to the, to the business unit. So whether it's big data or working capital management or overhead or whatever, don't spread, you know, uh, corporate-wide initiatives across the entire company uh, unless it's really appropriate to every single business unit. I think the biggest opportunity is to, to use big data is to understand your customer behavior better so that you can tailor your products, tailor your marketing, make sure you've got the right products at the right place, et cetera. Uh, so there, there, there is opportunities. It, does, it has very little to do with finance, though, uh, and it has more to do with you know, taking uh, marketing and customer analytics to another level. It doesn't, have, doesn't really change anything that, in terms of the way, though, that you think about value creation uh, or you trade off a big data initiative versus another initiative, right? This is anything else. Just because something is topical doesn't mean big data is the biggest source of value creation for a particular company or business unit. You have to rank order these things. What is the big? What are the biggest opportunities? Big data may be one, may not be one for an individual company or business unit. Excellent. Uh, speaking of tools, another tool companies uh, sometimes employ to try to uh, create value is uh, M and A or divestitures. Uh, what, what's your view on the importance of that as you as companies? look at their value creation opportunities. I think that one of the things that, you know, businesses go through a life cycle. And so therefore, a company needs to always be looking at all of its business units and figuring out where are they in the life cycle and are they still adding value to the company at that life cycle? And therefore deciding when do we need to uh, get rid of certain parts of our portfolio because it, of where it is in the life cycle, it doesn't fit with our corporate strategy, it doesn't fit with the way we're good at managing companies, uh, et cetera. So I think that there needs to be much more rigorous evaluation of businesses. Companies need to be much quicker to act, uh, particularly with regard to divestitures. Rule of thumb that we found talking to companies is that they recognize the need uh, and the importance of a divestiture often two years or so or more before they actually get around to executing it. And by then, the the value of the the business has declined, or they may take the approach that says, well, we're just gonna clean it up before we sell it, and that never happens. So divestitures are a, a big opportunity for companies. Uh, companies are reluctant to do it often just because it makes the company smaller. Shareholders don't care about the size of the company. They care about value creation. So companies do need to do, uh, be much more aggressive about pruning their portfolio on a regular basis and only focusing on the parts of the business where they can create the most value and you see more and more companies doing that, uh, not just in terms of divestitures, but in terms of a, a good example recently is uh, Procter & Gamble, where they've announced that they're going to uh, sell off all of their small brands and focus only on their largest brands because that's what they're good at. 
And it's a bit of a distraction to be trying to figure out how do I manage uh, 50 brands that each have more than $500 million of revenues and another 100 brands that have much smaller amounts of revenues. What I need to do to be successful is very different for the different kinds of brands. And they said, well, we're going to focus, therefore, only on what we're really good at. So they're pruning their portfolio in a different way. With regard to acquisitions, uh, similarly, uh, you know, acquisitions done well can be a, a good source of value creation. Companies run into problems, though, where they don't define what it is they're trying to accomplish with acquisitions, right? If I just say, you know, we want to grow faster, therefore we're going to do some acquisitions, that's not a good reason. Companies have to have a very uh, purposeful approach to acquisitions and figuring out what are we trying to accomplish with an acquisition? Are, are we good at distribution? Uh, and, lot, and and therefore we, we, we need to we can buy companies with small products who don't don't have the distribution networks and we can expand their distribution. Uh, are we buying technologies to fill in gaps in our own technology or product lines? Are we buying in order to consolidate an industry that has overcapacity? Do you think as you as you step back and think about your work with uh, top management. Do you think that senior management and boards have enough time, the right tools, and sufficient understanding uh, to look closely at financial data and really understand the value creation opportunities before them? I think it, it's not as much about the uh, 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 the time uh, or the tools, but probably the, the type of financial data that senior management is looking at. I think it's very important that that senior management looks at the right data, the right financial data that represent, that is closely linked to value drivers, you know, like growth and return on capital and what's beyond that, you know, uh, margins and capital turnover and should should look at these data in, in a in a systematic way that is focused not on the metrics that are showing up in the standard financial reports as dictated by accounting principles, but in a format that is that is more closely linked to what truly drives value. And that could be again much closer to return on capital and growth uh, and, and probably not related to measures like uh, earnings per share or net income. I think it's more about looking at the right data than not having enough time or not having the right tools. As Mark was saying, I think that, that part of it is, you know, uh, better, better information for managers so that they can more quickly assess what's going on to help make decisions. I do think that if a company is so big and complex that the senior executives feel they don't have enough time to really understand the economics and the financial performance at, of the business at a granular enough level, then that company is maybe too, too big and too complex and shouldn't exist, right? Because it's the job of senior management, right, to help the businesses to create value. And that is not just a matter of saying, you know, your stretch target for this year is X, and if you don't make it, we're going to not give you much compensation, right? Um, it is much more subtle than that. Similarly with the board of directors, if the board of directors doesn't have enough time to really understand the drivers of the company's performance at a granular enough level, you know, they need to shift the amount of time. They maybe need to devote more time to the business. Private equity firm boards spend a lot more time. We know that or they need to figure out a different way to make sure that at least some of the board members are, are spending sufficient time to really understand uh, the drivers of the company's performance, both the short term and the implications for, for the longer term. So I, I would be you know, a little bit stronger in sort of saying, if you don't have enough time to really understand what's going on, that means you've got your priorities wrong 
as a CEO, CFO, or your business is simply too big and too complex for you to manage. So let's say a CEO and a CFO take an honest look and conclude that they're not providing the right financial information for decision-making, for value-based decision-making. How do they fix it, and, and what's likely to be challenging as they try to do that? One of the things that we have found is that, in some cases, companies have become so lean in their finance departments that they're just barely able to keep up with the fundamental needs of providing financial statements and basic information like earnings. And I think that sometimes companies, I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised because we do projects for companies where we go in and we will spend you know, a couple of months helping a company understand the return on capital of the different business units, which you think that that would just come right out of their financial statements, right? But companies have sort of not invested in their financial systems uh, or when they acquire businesses, they don't integrate the financial systems. So it is very difficult for many companies to really understand uh, where they're creating value, where they're not creating value at a, at, a, at a reasonable granular level. And I think they need to step back and say, we need to perhaps invest more so that we do have the right kind of data and we have time for our finance executives, our finance team to think rather than just go from fire drill to fire drill, from quarterly earnings call to quarterly earnings call, et cetera, to really step back and, and be analytical and thoughtful about where they're creating value, where they're destroying value. They need to put more time into it. They need stronger teams, I think. And I think right. once that is in place, they will find it will actually take them much less time than today in, in understanding how to drive value creation across the company. It's an investment that will pay itself back very quickly. And we have seen some CFOs who have successfully pushed in this direction, and I think it has made a difference, but it, it takes a pretty strong person to, uh, to, to sort of say, we do need to make this, uh, we, need to, we do need to make this investment, we do need to make it so that we can get the information quickly and easily. And I think as Mark said, you know, after that initial investment is made, I think it often will pay off in, in, in less time spent to gather the basic data and provide the data and the analytics. Uh, but you do need to make that investment up front and a lot of companies aren't willing to make that investment. Excellent. Final question, back to the, the book itself. Valuation is a little unusual in that it's written both for senior managers and practitioners and uh, for students in MBA programs. And wonder what's similar and what's different about your aims with each of those audiences and what it's like to develop a book with that mixed audience in mind. The book discusses both kind of what the relevant insights are from analysis and valuation from executives, right? more than just the number that's coming out of the valuation, but it's also on the other end addressing very practical issues you know, that are relevant for, for those who are doing the valuation. Uh, practical issues like, uh, you know, where, where do I find the cash flow that I need to discount, right? Which is what most textbooks start with, uh, the cash flow is given. And in, in, in practice, of course, finding out what the cash flow will be is one of the most difficult tasks and making meaningful projections of cash flows going forward. And the book gives practitioners a lot of uh, guidance on, on how to think about these cash flows. And at the same time, the book is also providing a lot of insights for executives, what, what these numbers, what the analysis and the valuation results actually mean in terms of where they need to focus on, on, on driving value uh, for their companies. Fantastic. Well, congratulations to uh, both of you on completion of the book. And uh, thank you very much for your time today. This is fascinating and uh, look forward to hearing much more about this. Thank you, Alan, for the discussion. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Alan. It's been uh, great to talk to you.
The pleasure was mine. Again, the book is Valuation, Measuring and Managing the Value of Companies, now in its sixth edition. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.